Back here on the Falcons Audible, presented by AT&T, as we wrap up the Falcons' 24-16 loss to the Commanders at home this past weekend. I'm Derek Rackley. That's Dave Archer. DJ Shockley, the crew back in town. And we are going to break things down for you, A to Z. Or maybe more like A to L in a podcast, because we don't have enough time to go Mm -hmm. all the way to Z. Uh, But we're going to try to give you as much as we can. We're going to break down the matchup. We are going to try to give you some positivity, some guys that stepped up. Uh, There was one pretty important milestone that was hit in the game on the defensive side of the ball, so we'll talk about that. And then we'll get into some keys to a victory um, as the Falcons face the Buccaneers this weekend back in the division. All right, so, fellas, let's go ahead and break this one down. Um, I know you guys probably would love to see it, but the the conversation that we have before we come on the air (laughs) is actually pretty entertaining. Um, Although you end up getting some choice words that probably aren't as... uh, Anyway, I digress. That's my fault. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Arch, um, so let's let's get into this matchup. There was a a number of things, I guess you could say, that were working in Atlanta's favor coming into this game, right? Washington's defense had been scored on a bunch. They'd given up a bunch of sacks this year. Um, Sam Howell's been grinding it through, but he's had a tough go throughout the season leading into this game. And even though Atlanta was able to get five sacks in it, they still were not able to come away with the victory. If you could sum it up into two or three things, let me let me throw this out. My college coach used to tell us, this is back when we played 11 regular season games. And I felt like this saying, this phrase, kind of summed this game up. He always said, the difference between three and eight and eight and three is so small that if you blink your eye, your, your eye you miss it, right? This is back when you played 11 games in college. And to me, that phrase kind of... You, you, you had to be told that at Minnesota. They didn't tell you that at Georgia, did they? <laughs> no, they didn't tell us okay. that. Because no. Georgia... You and I had to hear yeah. that conversation. He yeah. didn't hear that Three and eight is never in a discussion <laughs> at Georgia. <laughs> but, but what the whole premise behind it is, is you can make three, four, maybe five mistakes in a game yeah. that has how many plays combined? 160-ish, right? Maybe 140. Both teams have 70 offensive plays. And you can lose a game. And to me, that was kind of the story of this one. There were many opportunities Atlanta had to not only take the lead, but take a commanding lead. But then three or four plays, Arch, went against them that, to me, turned the whole tide of the game. Yeah, you had a couple of – you created a couple short field opportunities for Washington. Okay, you mentioned they'd been a little bit challenged in protecting their passer. That continued in this game. They hadn't run the ball overly effective throughout the game, throughout the season. And Howell had thrown, I don't know, six or seven interceptions coming in. So – that all lend itself to thinking, okay, we're going to be the team that gets the short field opportunities, and it was the other way around. Uh, we made a mistake deep in our own territory, gave them uh, a, an opportunity to score. Defense didn't handle it very well. Defense has been great all year long in these sudden change situations. Yep. Two plays later, they bang it in for a touchdown. And then you get the punt return. Punt return creates another short field opportunity. That's a, like a turnover shock, oh, right? Yeah. No so doubt. you get. So you, and then you had the three turnovers, which took points off of your ledger. So you yep. throw an interception in the end zone. Uh, you had another, you had another plus territory inter, uh, interception that took away maybe your last opportunity uh, to score. So yeah, you start looking at three or four plays, yeah. five plays, and all of a sudden there's a swing of about seventeen to twenty-one yep. points there. Yep. And that's kind of what told the story. So Washington, DJ, scores 24 points in this game. And I had to kind of go back because I felt like when I was taking notes as I was watching the game back on the plane last night, there's some things that you remember. And then it's like, okay, let me document this because I didn't feel like Washington's touchdown drives were very long, right? So three touchdown drives, three plays, 11 yards. 
seven plays, 47 yards, two plays, 27 yards. Okay. Here's the reason why they had those short drives. The first one, three plays, 11 yards, Crowder's 61 yard punt return. Mm -hmm. Okay. Seven plays, 47 yards was the fourth and three that got stopped at midfield. So Mm -hmm. created that short field that you talked about. And then the two play 27 yard drive was the result of the fuller interception. So three plays right there allowed them to score probably easier touchdowns that than you would think because they didn't have to drive the whole field. This yeah. was not a after a kickoff starting on the 25-yard line forcing them to put together right. a long drive. Yeah. All of them were the result of short fields. Yeah. So again, you look back, three or four plays make a difference in the game. Yeah, no doubt about it. I think the biggest thing you think about and we talk about it all the time as players is complementary football. And you talk about how one side can complement another and obviously when you have things go against you it hurts the other phase. And in this ball game, you're talking about all three phases. You know, a lot of the, the talk has been about the offensive side, but, you know, there's two other phases that had to do their job. Just because they got a short field, I mean, you have to allow a touchdown. Like, because that happened, yeah, it's a little bit easier. And in this game, uh, in the National Football League, it makes it a lot easier for those teams who are really, really talented to score touchdowns. But I think in this, the complimentary part of it is what hurts you. And – Obviously, you put your defense in a in a rough spot there, having to you know have a sudden change. But it's something that I know as a former player that defensive coaches, that head coaches, that you prepare for. And sometimes, yeah, it's a little bit tougher to stop a team. But you have those three opportunities. Doesn't mean you have to allow three touchdowns, right? You know, and we've seen in the past where this defense has had sudden change moments, and you've held them to a field goal. Yep. And yep. I think those are instances where yeah, maybe one side hurt you, and then maybe you can pick them up and vice versa. I mean, I heard guys talking about after the game, yeah, uh, you know, we had a tough day on on the offensive side of the ball and things happened late in the ball game. But defensively, we could have done more. We could have created more turnovers. We could have taken the ball away from them and given our offense other opportunities. So there's always things that you can look back on and say, all right, how could we have played better even if given those crazy situations that we were in, we still weren't able to capitalize on them. Arthur Smith made, made a mention in his press conference, basically, and in, in kind of stating the obvious is that we're turning the ball over too much, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Atlanta, they, were, they lost this game in turnover margin, 3-0. They're minus six on the season, which is tied for 28th in the league. I went back and I looked at the bottom six, if you will, in turnover margin, because Atlanta's in the bottom six in the turnover margin. Their combined record, win-loss, 13-22, and, and there's only one team, Cleveland, that has a winning record right now at 3-2. and two. Flip that the other way. The top six in the league as far as turnover margin. Their record, oddly enough, 22-13. and 13, yep. Exact opposite <laughs> of the, the bottom of the turnover margin. And everybody has at least a winning record, 3-3 three and three, if not above. San Francisco, the best at 5-1. and one. I talk about it so often. These guys know it. The turnover margin is one of the statistics that most directly affects wins and, wins and losses in the National Football League. So I have two quarterbacks up here. Guys, I just thought about this, so bear with me. I feel like the average fan would want to know what two quarterbacks thought on a couple of the interceptions. So it's easy to sit here on a Monday or Tuesday morning after we've seen the play, we've slowed it down, and to make those decisions on what you would do with the football if you were in a situation. So I'm going to go back to you, DJ, and I want you to to talk us through the interception that was thrown to Van Jefferson when they ride the two-man combination over on the left-hand side of the formation. What you saw and what maybe you think Desmond should have done in that situation to alleviate that interception. 
Well, well first off, uh, ball placement is everything when you're throwing out routes. When you're throwing routes to the sideline, ball placement is the most important. And a lot of times you see a lot of guys, most times quarterback miss away from the guy, way to the sideline. You, you see him throw it maybe out of bounds sometimes because you don't want to leave it inside. And I think on that particular play, he left the ball a little bit inside. Now, here's the other you know thing that, that, that maybe can come up or maybe you can talk about is you're playing with a guy who just got here three, four days ago. Mm -hmm. And – you know, who knows if he's got to the proper depth? Who knows if he comes out as hard as he want, or hard as he can? Maybe the timing is not fully there. Maybe Ritter doesn't feel as though he's going to come out as fast as he does. I mean, yep. So there's a lot of things that, that we may not even know about that happened on this particular play that w was a big part of why it happened. But I think the biggest thing is there are things that happen within the route concept, and then – there's the ball placement and the accuracy of the football. And I think leaving the ball inside the corner really sat on the route. Who knows, maybe he did his film work and said, okay, when they get in this tight condensed formation, he knows what's coming. Yeah. And he simply sat on it. We yeah. talked about it before we came on, and Arch mentioned it. If Van Jefferson runs a wheel route, guess what? It's probably a walk-in touchdown. Mm -hmm. And this guy just had this this feeling about him that, hey, I'm going to sit on this route and I'm going to jump it. Sometimes that happens. You play against, against a bunch of aggressive corners in his league, and those are the guys who sometimes are really successful, and sometimes those are the guys that get burnt. In this situation, he picked the right thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he was 50% right on this particular play, and he drove on it and made a really good play on it. From Ritter's perspective, the best thing he could do is just put that football outside, regardless of who you're throwing to, regardless of who's out there, what that corner's doing. You got to throw that football outside so that next time if he puts it outside, now if he's sitting on the route, he has to go through the receiver to get to the football. You know, um, we, we call a lot of college games. I'm glad. That was really you, well done. There. I'm yeah, glad you pointed that, that out, like, DJ. As well. far as a lot of times when we go back and we break down a play, like we weren't in the huddle. We don't know exactly what the play is. We weren't on the practice field. We don't know what the proper depth of all these routes were, but we can just go back from our experience and say yes, what right. we think might have happened. Right. But you made a great point talking about Fuller, and I think it's what a lot of people need to understand, the, the major differences between the college game and the pro game, is that the pro game, the players are so experienced and savvy. In the college game, you might get away with that throw. For sure. Like that throw might be a first down, not even that. He might turn it up and have an explosive play. But, but pro guys, professionals, are so prepared – they play with such instincts, and they know when to take that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. They know when to take that chance. That's the reason why you don't see NFL quarterbacks throwing for 400 yards each and every week. Well, Tua Tungavailoa might actually have an mm. argument with that one. But, Dave, I'm going to put you on the spot now. So let's go to the, to the final interception. That was to Bijan on the quick slant, right? I think it's third and one at this, at this time, maybe third and three, something like that. But he tries to run the quick slant, tries to get inside of the linebacker, which you saw – and what you think could have been adjusted on that route. Well, I come to the line of scrimmage, and I look across the board, and I'm looking for my best matchup. They clearly are trying to stop the play, and as soon as the linebacker displaces with the back outside the numbers, I know i got man coverage. Mm -hmm. They're not playing zone. So I get that confirmation pre-snap. Now, which uh, which matchup do I like the best? Do I like Drake on on maybe a, a corner over here, or is do I have Kyle on a on a linebacker or a safety? I look outside and I got Bijan Robinson, probably most most explosive short short area guy, yep. and he's locked on a linebacker. Yeah, I love that matchup. Great matchup. So so now I predetermine. That's where I'm going because I've got man coverage, and I know that that's that. Now I just got to make sure that I don't stare it down or anything like that. But as I come back, as I take the snap, 
I'm expecting my guy, B. John Robinson, to run a route that is going to create separation for me to get the ball. So Bijan has to push up on a slant route. It's just not one step and go inside mm-hmm. because I'm not creating any problem for the defender to follow me or mirror me. He's got to follow me everywhere. If I'm going vertical, he's got to run with me. So I've got to give him some impression that I'm not running a slant. I may be running vertical. Maybe I'm running a corner out. He has no idea. But if I just step inside and go, he doesn't have anything to think about. He just has to mirror me and go with me. Yeah. That's where the first problem comes on the route is there, the route integrity is not there. He needs to push up two or three steps and come inside. If he takes one step and come inside, I'm not ready to throw the ball ready anyway. Yeah. I'm catching the ball in a shotgun scenario, seeding the ball and throwing it. So I need him to time up with me. That's where the timing in the passing game comes. So that two or three steps up, now bust to the inside. I've threatened the defender. I've created an illusion that I may be going vertical on him, and now I get that separation when I'm ready to throw the ball mm-hmm. and when I come inside. Now, the second thing Bijan's got to do is he's got to stay on the route. He cannot lose ground up the field mm-hmm. because as he loses ground up the field, what else does he do? He yeah, creates a window yep. for the defender to undercut. Yep. Okay, the third piece of this is I thought I, got, I thought they got away with interference. I thought that the, the linebacker grabs Bijan around the waist, but that's a part that you can't count on. Yep. You've got to do your job as a player, both as a receiver and now as a quarterback. As, as Shock talked about with that out route, my ball placement's got to be on the inside shoulder up the field. Now, you don't want to throw it too far out in front because now you're, you're leading him into something. But you want that ball on the inside shoulder up the f- inside to where he's not back hip or anything like that, which creates more of an opportunity to get the hand in. That's what you're looking for from a quarterback perspective. My job is to throw it in that spot, and the, and the receiver's job is to have that kind of route integrity. You didn't get that. I don't know if the ball placement was great either, so Des shares in some mm-hmm. of this, yep. but I think that the route was poor to where it created a problem uh, for Ritter to get the ball in there. As you were explaining mm-hmm. it, the two things that kind of come doubt. to my mind, great no explanation, by the way, no doubt. <laughs> is, is if Bijan presses him vertical – because you know that linebacker has been watching tape on Bijan Robinson all year. Oh, yeah, no doubt. He's been watching him make people look foolish, and he knows that he's got the speed and the quickness to get upfield, right? Yeah. So as soon as Bijan starts to push it vertical, he's going to say, I can't get beat downfield. Mm. However, the flip side of the defender, he's probably saying, What's the situation? Right. It's a veteran, right. it's third and one. Like, they probably have a route on where they're just trying to pick up the first down. Again, maybe a college linebacker doesn't think about this stuff. But an NFL linebacker thinks about that stuff. But the flip side of it is Bijan's probably thinking, I'm going to beat this guy off the line. Regardless. He's like, I'm so quick, and I got a linebacker over the top of me that I'm going to beat him. But those are the small differences that you talked about that you have to learn through experience in the National Football League. I heard Matt Ryan on the telecast. They were asking him – do you think it's better to have a year to get used to it, like backing somebody up or getting thrown into the fire? And he said, every situation is different, but he said, for me, getting thrown in the fire, there's no experience better than getting it on the field. Mm-hmm. So that was a quarterback, but the same thing could be said for Bijan Robinson. The next time, maybe he presses that two or three steps vertical and realizes that that small nuance is going to create that separation at the line of scrimmage. Let me add one more thing to it. And we talk about the details of the game. And you talk about the nuances. And on both sides and both particular plays, Arch talked about the details of, both of you guys said it, of him getting vertical, but also understanding what down a distance is, 
and how to get into their route because obviously if he's running at slant, he has to get to the proper depth because if not, guess what? The ball's not ready, and that throws off the timing. There's a small detail. On the Van Jefferson one, the small detail could be how he released. There are certain things where you look at as a defensive back, if he takes an inside release and he stems it up, okay, there's two or three routes that come off that. Or if he just goes simply vertical, there's maybe one or two routes that can go off that. There's so many little minute details that happen within a ball game that I think fans have to realize that affords a certain situation and gives maybe a defensive player maybe a little something in his brain that says, okay, I know exactly what's coming. Just like Arch just mentioned, all right, back goes outside, he stands out there, and the, and the, and the linebacker goes with him. For us, that's a great detail. That's a great thing for us to look, oh, I know it's man. So yeah. now it cuts down all the extra thinking. So the same thing goes for defensive backs for if he's in this particular alignment, if he takes this particular release, if he comes off a certain way, it triggers something for them. So there's so many little details in the game that I think fans have to realize that go into certain plays that allows a certain player to win on a certain route or situation. In addition to what Shock's talking about, just as far as me scouting it from a defensive player, I'm looking at splits, too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If the guy's split is tighter, it's more than likely he's going to try to get outside or he's running a deep over route. So I'm looking for one of those kind of scenarios. Uh, if a guy's got a wider split, which Bijan had, he's probably coming, coming inside because there's not <laughs> a lot of room to the outside. Yep. It's either a fade or I've got to defend to the inside. That's why you'll see defenders, if a guy gets wider, will take an inside technique and shade that inside shoulder because they've got the sideline as the extra defender to try to take away that inside that they don't have any help on. Mm-hmm. These are just little nuances that we're looking for when we come to the line of scrimmage in pre-snap trying to get an idea how they're going to try to defend something. And as a receiver, you can use the same information to help you get into a route or help manipulate a route and get and get where you need to get to. You remember that comment that I made at the beginning about the A through L in this mm-hmm. broadcast? The M through Z, I would love to get into. But, like, we just don't have enough time to get in the M through Z because these three guys here could sit up and talk about X's and O's with you sure. all day long. I do want to point out uh, one thing from a – a positive, a, a great moment that happened in the game is Calais Campbell got his 100th career sack. Um, and it was an awesome moment. Uh, it was great to see all the teammates. They all knew it was coming at some point this season, not only the players that were in the game, but once he went off the sideline, it seemed like everybody in the organization was there to show him a little bit of love. A guy that has only been here for a couple of months um, shows you how much they respect him, how much they're proud of him. Um, because I went back and looked at it, guys. There is 63 overall players in the National Football League history Mm. that have 100-plus career sacks, and there's only six guys currently with 100-plus sacks. So think about that company and the history of this game. Mm. He's one of 63 to have 100-plus career sacks. Um, First of all, Arch, you got to call this one in – in the moment what was your thoughts and how did it go for you and Wes up up top well we were just happy because he's such a good dude if you ever have a chance to talk to CC he's he's as quality a guy as you could possibly talk to plus it allows me now to use the nickname that I wanted to give him from the beginning of the season C-Note yeah he's now the C-Note uh it follows Keep it up hunter, with, <laughs> <laughs> so uh but I think that the joy I got out of it was watching a veteran player who had three sacks in a Super Bowl and is as good a player in the interior as we've seen here in Atlanta in a long time, and Grady Jarrett, 
um, the, one of the faces of the team, how ju- he was like a little kid yes. jumping up and Love down it. out there. And he was like, he wanted a hug, but he couldn't get a hug <laughs> because he was doing the dirty <laughs> bird, you know. But for him to get over there and be a part of that, and I think Grady said it the best. He said, I don't care how the game went. And, and we, well, we care. We care about how the game went. We wanted to win the game. But he just does did something that would be uh, is something that not very many people do. You just mentioned the numbers. Think about he's 37 years old. Think about how many off-season training programs. Think so. Think <laughs> about how many times he spent in the weight room. Think about how many injuries he's fought through. Mm-hmm. How many different time or different games he's played in to be able to get to that milestone, be healthy enough to be a factor in the game. And he is a factor now. You watch him play. It's not just that hundred sack. He made some plays in the game. Um, pretty cool. And I thought Grady did a really good job putting that in perspective. What do you think, DJ? You know what? I, I love the fact that this is a guy who, as you guys just mentioned, has had a uh, – I heard my man Bud Dupree talking to Arch about it, walking gold jacket. And mm-hmm. he's the guy who chose to put the dirty bird on his helmet. He chose to come here because of what he saw was happening and the guys out around him. He wasn't coming here just – because, you know, he needed another team and, you know, another check. This was a process that he went through to get here, and I love the fact that it happened here and it'd be written in stone when he got that 100 sack, and it was fun to watch it. And and, and I give Ryan Nielsen a lot of credit, too. On that particular play, he created the one-on-one by the alignment of the defensive front. And by allowing that, you know you give one of those guys a chance to win, him, Grady, Educated whoever was on the outside, you're going to give them a chance to win on the outside, and that's what you like. And seeing the excitement around everybody. You watch him when he came to the sideline. I mean, I believe every guy might have touched Calais <laughs> yeah. on that particular Some way, shape, off. or form. And give the secondary a lot of credit, too. They're probably – you had five sacks in the game, and uh, I look back and probably four or five of them were covered sacks. Mm-hmm. So without the back end working with the front end, doesn't get that sack. And him continuing to work, and then he also, you know, just hip-tossed the dude uh, to, to get to Sam Howell when he tried to come up in the pocket. So it was fun to watch it, fun to see the celebration, and happy that he got it done now, and, yep. you know, we can work on one-on-one now. So there was no way that Calais Campbell was going to retire sitting on 99 career sacks. Uh, uh, but glad that he was able to get 100 in an Atlanta Falcons jersey. And see, no. for those that don't know, I think, uh, Arch, you mentioned that he is such a good dude, right? So – this has probably been in works for a while, but because he is such a good dude, Calais Campbell knows that that his name and his number is in rare company now. Like, that part is done. So what does he decide to do? He puts together the 100-sack give back. So he ends up getting 100 sacks, but what does he want to do? He wants to give back to other people. Pay for- so he has decided to give $500 to 100 teachers each, $500 each to 100 teachers nationwide in the four cities that he has played in, Phoenix, Jacksonville, Baltimore, and Atlanta, each teacher will receive $500 to use for purchases in their classrooms. There's going to be 100 teachers across the country that have never met Calais Campbell before. Right. That that probably know his name. Maybe they saw him when he was playing for the team. Or don't even know him. Don't know him. And they're going to all of a sudden wake up one day to $500 from this Mm -hmm. guy because he got a sack, but he's given money back out of his pocket to other people. And I hadn't seen this. I just had a thought. I hadn't seen if it's happened yet. But I wouldn't be surprised if some other people start matching it. Maybe the Falcons. Maybe Arthur Blank matches it. Because this could be a time where Calais Campbell's like this. It's about me. 
And what does he say? No, it's about everybody else. He says, there's so many people that were important to making me an NFL player, to putting me in this platform, to be able to do this, to get 100 sacks. So he's giving money out of his pocket back to people in the community. If that's not the best example about how good of a dude this is, you tell me. Tell me another one. No doubt. Yeah. Tell me another one. No doubt. Well done. So congratulations to Clayus Campbell on getting that 100 sack Are you going to start calling him C-note? Are you going to – you know, I know we have the you shall not pass. Is there something coming for Clayus now? We'll, we'll work on it. Okay. But uh, C-note's definitely coming out of the mix. I've been waiting on that C-note one. C-note with like the pressure? The next sack. C-note. <laughs> something, something. Something, something like that? Okay. Oh. Did we record that back there? Well, we'll, we'll, hey, you that. threw it out here, so like you better have some fun with it now. Oh, you will. For sure. Have some fun with it. All right, uh, before we go, let's kind of let's move forward to Tampa Bay. Arch, uh, I always start with you. You do such a great job of kind of breaking down what Atlanta is going to see in the next opponent with the Buccaneers. So, what challenges does Tampa Bay present to Atlanta this year? Well, they got a big dude in the middle named Vita Vea that we've never really blocked very well, so he's <laughs> he's always a problem. Interior guy that that is a big dude that I thought played really well against the Lions this weekend they lost the game but i thought vita vea created all sorts of problems they got two interior linebackers in devin white and levante david levante david has a career of tackles for loss against atlanta in his long and uh distinguished career as a tampa bay buck uh it's a secondary that's okay um, but I think that the front seven is where their bread is buttered. They've got two edge, good edge players, Vita Vey in the middle, and these two linebackers. So that'll be a challenge. This is a team that's coached by Todd Bowles that likes to be aggressive with those two linebackers. Uh, what was it, Shock? A couple of years ago where Devin White came in here and had, what, three or four sacks in one game no as an inside linebacker. So you can bet those linebackers are going to be very active in coming after uh, Atlanta. Um, this is a game, if you remember a year ago, Atlanta lost 21-15. to This is a game they trailed, I think, 21-3 to at halftime. Atlanta came out and hammered them with the run game. Um, and then you had the horrendous call on Grady Jarrett with the oh, sack uh, and yep. <laughs> roughing oh. the passer on Tom Brady, which was a brutal call that uh, uh, took oh. away Atlanta's opportunity to touch the football in the second half and probably go down and win the football game. Very close game last year. They've had some very close games down there in Tampa, and it's a game they got to have. It's a divisional game. DJ, Dave mentioned the inside linebackers for Tampa. I had, a, I had another NFL game this weekend where I had the Ravens and the Titans, and I made a comment during the air – that the Ravens might have two of the better inside linebackers in the National Football League and Roquan Smith and uh, Patrick Queen. And then you've got Dre Greenlaw and Fred Warner over at San Francisco. Mm. Two pretty good players as well. But I think Arch makes a great point that that Tampa has, for a number of years, had a couple of really good inside linebackers. What else sticks out to you as keys for Tampa Bay um, for Atlanta to come away with a win, shake off that commander's loss? Arch did a great job of talking about Obviously, the the guys on the defensive side who absolutely have been stalemates for them for years to come down the road. And on the other side, obviously, Baker Mayfield's a guy who you've seen around the league, who's been up and down the last couple of years, but he's had a couple of games this year where he felt like he's found his footing. Uh, but the guy on the outside is still a problem. My man, <laughs> Mike Evans, is still an issue on the outside. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just he eats 1,000-yard seasons every year. Yep. He continues to be a big playmaker, and he's always been one of those guys that has shown up in uh, the games versus the Falcons. Chris Godwin's another guy who has played really well for them and, and taken over one of those roles as one of the, 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 the star players. And to be honest, Baker Mayfield, he's only been sacked five times this year, which is you know kind of remarkable here. For one, it tells you not hold on to the football. Maybe they're protecting him a little bit better. 
but he's doing a good job of getting rid of it. And over the years, he's been a guy that's taken a bunch of sacks. He's been a guy that's thrown it into coverage. And this year, he's only got three interceptions. So uh, something has clicked for them on that side for him. And uh, you're hoping that he has one of those games where he's back in Cleveland and he gives us. So Cleveland memories. Yeah, a lot of screens. If you look at him on tape, a lot of screens, a lot of RPO. They like to the run that uh, tight. RPO package where he either hands it or he pulls it and throws in behind the linebackers. As aggressive as Atlanta's linebackers are with Caden Ellis and Nathan Nathan Lamon, this will be interesting because those two linebackers play best when they're attacking, coming downhill. And if they get too aggressive downhill, they're going to throw a lot of that stuff in behind. Look for look for them to try to exercise that opportunity in in their pass game. It's a good point you make there because I looked up some numbers on them and they only got one rushing touchdown all year long. And it tells you they've been obviously trying to get it done in the past game. Maybe the run games hadn't been there. Uh, Archie may know better than me, but this is uh, a team that looks like, yeah, they'll try to run it. But like you mentioned, RBOs, a lot of stuff to get Baker on the edge is where they live. You mentioned uh, Mike Evans. I know this is the opponent, but I thought about this a couple weeks ago. I asked you guys a quick question. Mike Evans, first ballot Hall of Famer when he retires? Yeah, I don't know. The, like the first ballot thing, I don't. there's so many guys in line, right, mm-hmm. the, that are waiting to get in. Um, the guy's got, what, eight consecutive thousand-yard seasons, I think, as a as – a, and they don't want to pay him in Tampa. <laughs> right. You <laughs> know, hey, we, we I might mean, have I a just, couple extra bucks at, up here and bring him up here. I look at that stat, and then I look at the fact that he got him a Super Bowl victory, and it's like what else does a guy have to do, Dude's, you know, as far as a wide receiver? And he continues to produce yeah. as he gets older. Big-time player, man. Not necessarily want to see that a whole lot this weekend. No. Sometimes – in the fraternity, you got to give credit where credit is due to some other guys. And he's had a couple of big league. days against Atlanta now. <laughs> Let's, um, no how about question. Like a four for 47 this week would be just fine. <laughs> take and, and you could take that to your Hall of Fame maybe one day down the road. So Tampa uh, leading the division as it stands right now at three and two. They've had a bye week. Atlanta sitting right behind them at three and three. So hopefully Atlanta, obviously you, your divisional games is like a two for one, right? So it's a huge opportunity. One thing, nothing has changed from last week. I know everybody's uh, heartbroken with the loss and, and you felt like you had a chance to win it, and you did. You had a chance to win this weekend. But when you look up and stick your head up, there's one less game on the ledger and the scenario's the same. The Saints lost this weekend, Tampa out. lost, Atlanta lost, Carolina lost. So it's essentially a reboot. reboot. Now, you don't get to play in your own building. you got to go to yep. Tampa. Yep. But you have an opportunity to affect this scenario where you jump right back in the lead again. you just got to flush this one out of your mind. Learn from, as Rack said, a lot of young players. We talked about routes, and we talked about where the ball is supposed to be placed. That's what you're going to get with a young team. Mm-hmm. Learn from your mistakes and move forward so you're better the next week. I anticipate this team being that. And oddly enough, front office and, and coaching staff, that's what they want to see. Like, does he make the mistake and then fix it and not make it again down the road? And, and if you can do that, you can become a great player in this league because sometimes yeah. you got to learn from some bad mistakes. And I, I think one thing that, 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 that sticks in my mind is Arthur Smith spoke yesterday and he spoke about – how he loves coaching Dez and how honest he is about the entire situation that's going on. And I love the fact that he mentioned that he loves coaching him because he doesn't make those mistakes over and over again, but he's honest with himself enough to say, all right, here's where the mistakes were made. Here's where I have to get better. And he can take the criticism and he can take whatever the coaching is to be better the following week. And uh, I mean, I I saw Dez stand up after the game and own it. Um, I saw him own it with Arch. This is a guy that you want to be in this position because you know he will respond. The last time he didn't he didn't have the game he wanted, I should say. 
he came back the next week and played really well. So that tells you he has that kind of mindset of, all right, we got to turn the page and I'll be better next week. Well, let's see how Desmond Ritter and the rest of the Falcons respond as three and two Tampa Bay hosts Atlanta at three and three this weekend down in South Florida. So uh, that's going to wrap it up here for the Falcons Audible presented by AT&T for Shock and Arch. I'm Rack. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back here same time, same Holla. place, however you get your podcast material next week. Take care, everyone. See you. Nope.